Welcome to the LabOp Leaders Series, a showcase of global change agents and experts in healthcare and laboratory management. Here's your host, LabOp Global Founder, Robert Farias. We're pleased to have with us Shadrach Wary today. Shadrach, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Robert. Shadrach, let's begin uh, from an academic perspective. Uh, what's your background? Sure, that's a very good question. So I'm a medical lab scientist. I did um, um, master's of science in laboratory sciences um, and research at the University of Maryland in the US. But before then, I'm one of those people who began from the very lowest point in my profession. I did um, medical uh, lab technician in Tanzania then uh, diploma, then bachelor degrees, then master's level. Actually, I did another post-diploma in supply chain management uh, recently, again in the US. So um, it's really broad, but I began from the very lowest level and uh, just scaled up uh, to that very point. It's very interesting. So can you, can you give us a bit of a backstory on how that took place and how you, took, how you uh, chose that path? Absolutely. So where I grew up, I grew up in one of the remotest parts of Kenya, uh, in the uh, southern part, western part of Kenya, in Migori County. So when I was coming up, I didn't even know about laboratory, to be very honest. I didn't even know that it was existing to begin with. But uh, because of the challenges I encountered in my early years, so I was doing some um, odd jobs in a hostel in Migori. It was a mission hostel as I was also going to high school. So when I was doing these odd jobs in a hostel, there was one person who came from Uganda and was, was working in the lab. His name was Opeo. So he was really respected in Migori as someone who could be able to give some diagnosis that is the one working in the lab. So at that, at that time I was like, oh, so all the diagnoses are done by this gentleman called Opeo from Uganda. So this means that we don't have anything to do with the laboratory sciences in Kenya. So he was really respected and I could just peep through the window and see how he was doing things. And, and I built a lot of interest in the laboratory world because when I was seeing by then uh, the reporting system was really different. You know, a lot of things were plus, plus, plus. If you give urine, it was plus one, plus two, plus three, you know. So if I could see someone with plus four, that means that person was seriously infected and plus three, plus four. So I developed a lot of interest in this gentleman called uh, Opeon. Then a friend of mine, uh, actually is a distant relative called Agustin Cordero, who was a clinical officer, uh, an equivalent to a physician assistant in the US, um, came and he was working there. By then there were very few professional in Migori. So he told me that, man, I can take you to Tanzania, go do this lab things. I'm like, really? So we can, I can go and do this. So immediately I finished high school. He connected me with some friends in Tanzania. And um, you know I, I didn't even know my Swahili because in Tanzania you have to know Swahili well, but my Swahili was really, really bad. So he connected me with some friends in Tanzania um, in uh, Bugando Medical Center by then. Nowadays is um, Bugando Teaching University. I think it's a university, something like that. So I went there and that's where I did my um, technician course, two year technician course, then came back to Kenya. Then I pro progressed to um, bachelor degrees, then went to the US 
to do my master's as I now was working. Now, so when you were when you were a technician going back, did you head back towards your hometown? Did you move to a different location in Kenya? What was your uh, what was your path from the technicians when you graduated as a technician yes. in Tanzania? Right. So when I finished my technician course, it was early 90s. That was the time HIV was really ravaging the world. And uh, I remember one of um, um, you know, my professors of uh, clinical chemistry in Buganda Hospital really loved me. I, th I think uh, I don't you know, exalt myself or praise myself for, for no reason, but I think I performed very well to the extent that being a Kenyan, they retained me to work with him in a HIV uh, lab. By then, we didn't have this rapid test, or we were not even doing PCR. It was Western blot. So I was working with him in a Western blot for almost six months, but something happened that I thought, let me just come back home. So I left Buganda Hospital. I told them that um, you know I'm going back to Kenya. I'll come back, but I never went back. Then I went to Nairobi, and uh, you know in Nairobi I was be posted by the Ministry of Health to one of the driest areas in Kenya called the Siolo, which I didn't like. Then I came to Kisumu. I started freelance lab technician work with um, some doctor, private doctors. Then I worked with them. Then I thought, let me just uh, try to find a place to work with uh, um, mission hostels. I went another place called Kisi. I worked there. Then I joined Kijabe. Then from there, Kijabi is where now everything opened up. I went for my diploma and, um, you know, University of Maryland came. That's now 2000, I mean, 19, no, 2004, when uh, President Bush gave funds for the AIDS Leaf HIV program. And some folks came from the University of Maryland, interviewed me in Kijabi Hospital and told me that, yeah, man, uh, we think that we can be able to have you come and, um, you know, get an adequate training on, um, um, immune and virology called detection systems at the University of Maryland, so that um, we wanted to help us here in Kenya. Then I was invited for some training um, at the University of Maryland in the US, got trained there. Then uh, when I came back, actually, we were three people, myself and someone from Uganda called Joy Lemuto, and uh, another lady from Nigeria called Rita. And um, so when we finished the training there, I came back to Kenya. And I was told, man, you know, among the three, we are very much pleased with you. We have to hire you from here because there was no way, no system. University of Maryland did not have a system of um, hiring me um, in Kenya. So they told me that they are going to give me a visa so that they could hire me to work for them, but still based in Kenya. That's how I joined at the University of Maryland. And that's how they gave me a visa to be able to work for them while living in Kenya. What kind of work were you doing for the University of Maryland, Shadrach, at this point? Yeah, sure. I was, uh, um, majorly, I was doing CD4 counts, uh, and it was by then we didn't have these um, machines or these digital things that have come up. So a lot of it, I was just doing the manual CD, CD4 counts with the microscopes. So they trained me on the manual CD4 counts. Then later the BD fax count also came. Uh, they trained, actually I found BD fax count also there. They trained me on that also. So when I came back to Kenya, they told me that I was not going only to um, do support Kenya system. Uh, I mean the program in Kenya, but they told me that I'm going to support Kenya, Tanzania and Uganda. So I was going around training people on CD4 
then eventually um, we started also doing a viral load by um, a technique called, I mean, by the instrument called the Cavity uh, system. So they trained me on that also. Then I was just going around doing the, um, uh, collecting samples for the Cavity viral load. And, um, you know, I was collecting samples, separating them and running these samples in Kijabe. Now in Kijabe, I installed, I, I worked on a, um, a special room where I was doing CD post and viral loads. And I was doing them crazily, you know, in mass, in thousands. And uh, I think that was really uh, pleasing to uh, Dr. Redfield, who was the um, CDC director who left uh, CDC, uh, I think some few months ago. So he said that man, you know, we, you, you have just to be our man and support um, not only Kenya, but East Africa. That's great. So from the University of Maryland, um, working for them in Kenya, what was the next steps for, for your progression? Yeah, sure. So um, when the University of Maryland gave me a visa for uh, first three years, then another, they renewed it for another three years, then they could no longer renew my work visa, that is H-1B visa. Then I said, what next? The only option that was there was for me to apply for a green card permanent residence in the US. And uh, because I was an employee of the University of Maryland, um, they told me that I qualified for uh, advanced training at the University of Maryland, that is doing my master's and the university was going to pay for my tuition fee. So I said, this is a good deal. And um, I engaged um, a lawyer in the US who helped me put papers together, got all the recommendations, applied for the green card. Then uh, uh, by God's grace in 2020, 2012, my green card or permanent residency as it's known was approved. Then I had now to relocate. Before then I was just going back to the US and coming here, you know, back and forth with my family. But in 2012, I had now to relocate to the US because I wanted one, to pursue uh, my master's degree and two, um, it was necessary for me to be able to stay in the US because that's a requirement if you're a green card holder. So I had to relocate with my family and uh, lived there. Then I joined uh, you know, master's class graduate school at the University of uh, Maryland. Uh, that is um, the same 20, uh, 2012, the same year I relocated there. Then um, when I graduated in 2014, finished my master's degree, the program in which I was working in, the first AIDS relief track one also ended the same year. So I said, wow, now what next? Then, uh, um, you know, uh, again, a friend of mine connected me to Global, Global Health Scientific Solution for Health, uh, you know, working with Dr. Paula, who is um, the owner or the proprietor or the founder of that organization, that is um, GSS Health, Global Scientific Solution for Health. Then um, we were getting funds from CDC and supporting military labs in um, West African countries, that is um, Sierra Leone, Togo, Benin, uh, um, and I think Liberia, though I didn't go to Liberia, but uh, I joined. Um, Paula and I was their key trainer for the military labs uh, personnel in those Western um, uh, African countries. Even though it was a bit of a challenge because I, my, my French was not really fluent, but um, 
thank God that we were having translators to be able to accompany me. So it was not a big problem when I was traveling to West African countries. Then I worked with Paula um, for one year. Then um, Chemonix was also granted some funds for the supply chain in 2015, 2016. Then I think somehow they went through the LinkedIn and found me in the LinkedIn and contacted me that we have seen your profile. We've seen that you have a vast experience in Africa. We would really like you to come and join us so that you can, at least you've done a lot of clinical lab things, but now you can join the supply chain people to broaden your scope of work and, and your profession, which I thought was a good idea. Then uh, 2016, I um, honorably resigned from Paula's place and she, we still maintain friendship up to today. She was a wonderful, wonderful, employer, really, really good, a good person, say, to say the least. But I had to move because um, Hemonix was a big company. And of course, too, um, the, I was going to do uh, something new that I've never done before. I liked challenges, you know, something that could challenge my, my, my thinking and my knowledge. So I joined Hemonix at that time and uh, started again uh, traveling everywhere now, uh, going to Burma, Myanmar, going to Indonesia, going coming back to Africa, both in the Francophone, Ghana, name it, all, almost every country um, in, in Africa. Then I had now to get some basic training of the supply chain so that I could be able to understand where things are coming uh, from and where they, they are going. So I did also past, um, I mean, postgraduate diploma in the procurement um, supply chain management when I was uh, with Chemonix and thank God they paid also the tuition fee for me to be able to do that. And I did it in a record time, uh, you know, three months instead of one year, <laughs> which was really <laughs> like, really, have you finished this? I said, well, yeah, yeah, if there's anything left, please let me know. <laughs> yeah. So Shadrach, let me uh, let me ask a question then. So from a perspective of your career and your academic progression, you've seen vast amount of changes in the laboratories back both in terms of capabilities, in terms of availability of equipment, uh, in terms of even focus of, of, of illnesses as well that people have been looking at. And you've had the, you've had the experience to be in multiple countries on multiple continents as well. And experience it from that from that perspective, as we along along the way. Can you give us a sense of your perspective of of the diagnostics landscape and your perspective of how that's impacted some of the labs locally, based on what's changed uh, and what what is what you've experienced specifically over your period of time with the supply chain? Because naturally, uh, that's that's obviously been historically one of the more challenging issues um, in, in many developing countries. So. Please give me your perspective on that. Yeah, sure. I think um, you're right. I have a lot of experience, especially in the lab, and now coupling up with the uh, supply chain, uh, you know, supply chain thing. Well, I am one of those people who are trained on um, the old techniques of doing laboratory uh, work. People have been talking about mouth pipetting. Very few people nowadays you know, are there who did this, but I did it. That is what we used to do. If I was to do hemoglobin test, it was mouth pipetting, anything. To, and the pipette was just mouth pipetting with graduated pipette. We didn't have these digital things. So um, coming, and of course, we didn't even have this rapid test. Even if we were to do, I can remember in, in Bogando, if we were to do blood sugar, 
it was just autotolivin um, method. We were just boiling these things, taking forever to get the blood sugar result out. So a lot of things, uh, you know, eventually started changing. But what I can tell you is that, uh, Robert, if people are not very careful, changes will always overtake, um, you know, uh, the individuals who are trained a long time. It is not easy for one who knew this is how we are doing things and things have changed and try to adopt to that kind of new system. Changing the mindset is not something that very, that's very easy. It takes one to, um, you know, bend low to accept that the reality has come to us. We have to ac accept the changes that um, the machines are now here, which are now working like robots because we used to do differentials manually. Nowadays, you put your sample in, in, in a machine and you get everything, including differentials. But again, this is the, the reason why I would say the new uh, scientists are coming out of college without knowing some of the basic or the principles of things that um, uh, they are giving out. They're just churning the results without knowing the basic uh, principles of what they are doing. You just get the blood put in the machine, push the button, which anyone can do and get the results. But then we were just doing the actual work. If it's a, a, you know doing some differential, you have to know the types of the cells you're talking about. If you are trying to find the cancerous cells, you have to know how they look like and you had to identify them and, and give the morphological uh, you know, appearances of these cells. So it, there was that part which was really good, but the challenge with them uh, with that is that the results was taking like four days to come out. Even for the HB, you could not just come and get your HB immediately because I had incubation only was taking 10 minutes when I was just incubating um, the sample to, to uh, you know, for me to use the calorimeter to read and analyze to get the optical density of the same. So things have really changed, but uh, I really appreciate that the old people, many of us who are trained, many, many of us uh, are no longer working on the benches. New people are on the benches, but they, many of them, because I've trained so many lab, uh, lab guys, they don't know the basics, why they're doing what they do. This is, I'm just being honest, they don't. So um, many of them is like, I get the result, push the button, get the result out, and you know, it's just turn around time quickly. Within five, 10 minutes, you, the results is out. You ask them now, tell me the principle behind what you're doing here. Why uh, do you think, what's the, the normal value? Why is this one is low? What time do you have to do this? What's the rationale behind all what you're doing? Why and what and how? Uh, very few people will be able to respond to such kind of questions nowadays. Uh, and, and something that I wanted to say, during our time, the supply chain was, to us, was left for pharmacies, which was a good thing though. But we have realized that the supply chain is not just about the pharmacies, not just about drugs. Because if you could go to any lab and ask the lab technician, where do you get your supplies from? They tell you from the pharmacy. And what's the stock level that you have there? They don't know. You know, they just push things to the pharmacy and uh, pharmacists will just give them whatever they get, whether good or bad, they don't know. And that happens today. So that is the reason why I think when I got an opportunity to um, join the procurement supply chain management, it was an eye opener that supply chain is not just only for the pharmacists. Everybody should be able to learn and know what it entails. That is now from end to end, from ordering your products, storing them, using them, and giving the data back to making sure that you get a new order. 
So everybody should be able to understand the whole concept of the supply chain so that you can appreciate when there is a stocker out, what are what is the you know the, the problem? Where does the problem come from in the chain? So um, I, I think I've trained so many lab people nowadays to be able to get involved in the supply chain uh, in, in their um, uh, capacities as lab professional and also help doctors to understand why they even um, charge whatever the cost they are charging. Because again, you, you will appreciate that even make, uh, coming up with the cost per test, many lab guys were not um, involved in the calculation of how much the test should be. They are just told that this creatinine is going to be, you know, one dollar or, um, you know, if in Kenya, hundred shillings. Why is it a hundred shillings? No, I'm told by the administrator, you know, it should be a hundred uh, shillings. There is no rationale. There is no reason why or justification as to why it should be hundred or two hundred or whatever the cost um, they, they are charging. So if our lab people, like now, I believe many of them have really uh, done a good job because it was not in their curriculum, but now it is. They should also be able to understand how much the test kit is costing, you know, from the procurement to the shipment to the storage, the holding, all these things you put the cost together and of even the instrument, then you come up with the actual cost of whatever uh, the test you are, you, are, you are giving out. And your perspective on... Um current diagnostics and um, opportunities that are out there for people to advance their capabilities. So obviously HIV has taken a large role uh, in the lab and both as a lab support mechanism. Generally, a lot of the programs that were began uh, funded, as you mentioned back uh, via PEPFAR and other vehicles uh, focused on HIV, but uh, trends or changes you see in the, in the availability of, of capacity for that, uh, for that illness and others. It is true that HIV has been an issue, but I always tell people that HIV itself doesn't kill. Uh, and when I say like that, and I stop there, someone will say, what are you talking about? My cousin, my nephew died of HIV. Yes, he died of HIV, but what killed uh, your nephew, your cousin is not HIV, is the opportunistic infection or you know the OIs that come as a result of HIV, which are controllable. So things have really changed, you know, um, when we began this uh, um, AIDS relief or uh, HIV uh, management or treatment way back 2004, and we were very aggressive giving counseling and doing the CD4s and the viral laws and all these things, and people were just, we were pushing people to get into, uh, you know, um, ARVs and things like that. Things have really changed. I think we reached at a certain position where many people felt like, okay, after all, now we're okay. The drugs are there. We can do, uh, you know, we can just go back to our normal lifestyle. That explains the reason why people are going back to where we began because there is advanced HIV disease, AHD, which is now a big, big problem. People are now talking about it. What, why is it a big problem? Simply because you realize that um, like cryptococcus neoformans, which causes crypto, um, you know, uh, cryptomeningitis, it has really globally, when I look at um, the articles that are out there, almost seven to 10% of HIV infections have cryptomeningitis. And many places still do not even think of screening patients who are, um, uh, you know, having low CD4s for the crypto. They don't screen them. And uh, they think that um, by putting these patients on ARVs, 
the patients are going to get better, while that is the cause of the death of many patients we have nowadays. So I, I think there is um, a way in which we should not forget where we came from and should not neglect some of the tests that we are supposed to embrace as we manage holistically patients of HIV uh, infection. We should embrace the fact that when I have the naive patients before I put them into care, let me just go back. It reached a point that we were not even thinking of doing CD4 anymore. People were just uh, talking about, hey, you have your patient just do the, the viral load, then uh, put that patient on care. That is a very wrong way of handling these patients. They should get first their CD4s. Those people with the um, CD4 below 200 uh, cells account should actually get screened for crypto because you don't do that. Whatever you are doing, you might end up killing these uh, patients here. So um, things have really changed. And I think globally, the uh, papers, the articles are outside there. The abstracts have been published severally where Cryptococcus neoformance um, has really come up uh, very seriously. And now we are talking about having a reflex testing where you have the CD4 to be done. And uh, once it's 200 and below, immediately that patient should go for um, uh, a CRAG uh, test. Then from there, they should do uh, TB lamp that's to make sure that they don't have TB because these are the opportunistic infections that really kill uh, our HIV patients. So you have to screen all these things together to make sure that if you have to put someone on ARV, the patient is okay. Or maybe patient was on ARV, but still the CD4 has dropped. Go again, you know, do the screening, make sure that they don't have TB, make sure that there's no um, meningitis caused by uh, crypto. Make sure that, that any, any form of OI is not there. Then you can be able to see if it's now just some kind of failure, you can switch the regimen to the next um, regimen level. Very fair point. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Shadrach. And in terms of the capability to test for serum crack these days, um, I, I remember attending a conference several years ago where they had launched a device uh, for rapid testing. I believe, I forget if it was Gates, uh, program or con competition that launched the, the search for the serum crack test or not. Uh, but I do believe it's become much more prevalent uh, in the market. Can you give us a bit of a sense of, of what's happening in that space? Yeah, sure. Um, what happens is that um, in our old days, even before um, HIV thing, uh, we were doing crack test either through the gram staining or India Inc. Well, in um, the Francophone countries, they call it China, China Inc. But uh, with us here in the um, Anglophone, we call it India Inc. So when I was trained, I knew for one, to get screened for the crypto, Im uh, immediately it was just the India Inc. Uh, and and um, you know, again, all these ones were to be done under the microscope. You have to know really, because it was a negative staining, you have to know how they appear so that you don't just count the bubbles under the microscope to be the, the, the crypto. So again, the sample that was to be used for this uh, crypto test was only the CSF, that is central uh, spinal fluid, which required again, a specific and uh, trained physician to be able to get the CSF fluid uh, to, to, do, to, to send to the lab. So over a period of time, that's all what we knew. If you were to do uh, fast or quick, test. 
or it was to be done uh, as a gram stain or, or a culture or something like that. Now, when HIV management began and patients started having a lot of uh, crud, uh, problem, I remember, and at that time I was also doing my bachelor degrees, uh, IMI companies uh, started the um, agglutination crack screening test, which is a cold chain. But to us, it was um, a game changer at that time because the positivity rate was really high. We realized that, oh my goodness, the India ink was almost relatively like only 50% sensitive. So we, many patients were just dying because we could not be able to detect them. Then they came with the agglutination test, crack test, which was really um, a game changer. We really got so many people, positive um, cases and that increment helps us to understand that um, India ink was not the best. And globally, we said, please don't go for the India ink. Otherwise, many patients are going, especially for HIV patients, many of them were just becoming false negative while they were actually positive. And because of the demand of, uh, uh, you know, people want fast things very fast. Nowadays, even food is just fast, everything fast, you know, glucose fast here and now. Um, Imi again um, went ahead and developed lateral flow assay, crack test, which again became a huge relief. And that explains the reason why uh, I think I joined um, Imi because literally I lost so many of my relatives through um, uh, crypto meningitis, so many, CM, so many of my, my relatives died of that. So when um, Imi came up first with the uh, agglutination and um, they developed again, the lateral flow assay, which is just within 10 minutes, you get your result and it's more sensitive, almost 99%. I said, my goodness, this is the best ever. And being that I lost a lot of my relatives, I became, even before I joined Imi, Actually, I became an advocate for people to get screened for the crack. There is no reason, there's no excuse why one should not get the crack, uh, you know, screening. And by the way, when I was doing my bachelor degrees, um, I did a study on the, um, you know, using the lateral flow assay and uh, the latex agglutination, the crack one. And I realized that um, they were relatively the same, though the problem with them. Um, um, latex agglutination is that it was taking a longer period of time and it needed someone with um, a proficiency in pipetting and it needed some cold storage because you we were to dilute part of the reagents and keep them in freezer so that, that uh, you know the time it takes for one to get uh, the result was at least you know almost an hour and and uh, and uh, this one is just 10 minutes the other the lateral is just only 10 minutes and again, the challenge with the agglutination is that it's a cold storage. Nowadays, people don't, you know, in the rural areas, they don't want to have a cold storage things where the fridge may not be there, there's no power. They just want things that you can put even in the ambient temperature and use them and get still the cooling result. So things have really changed. And of course, there's nowadays many competitors who are outside there coming up with the lateral flow assay, which is good actually is making the market be level and, and uh, bringing the, the cost down uh, to ordinary um, citizens to access this great and important test, especially HIV patient 
who really need the, uh, you know to be screened on that. So things have changed. There is now very rapid test, and of course, um, the um, you know the golden one is doing the culture. But I think the sensitivity. If you look at the sensitivity of the LFA, I think um, um, the LFA has really shown and proved to be one of the best and the game changer in uh, the line of supporting and helping and managing HIV patients. Shadrach, just two more questions. I'm conscious of our time together. Um, no, it's okay. Any advice particularly for um, younger people currently in studies, younger people considering a career in the lab, uh, some suggestions or some advice you have for them? Things have changed. Things are not just normal. It's not just, uh, you know, we have so many med techs, uh, as we call them in the US. So if you're just a med tech, why, why would one hire you? What, what's the difference between you and the one who is there? It's not just a matter of pushing the blood and drawing and putting it there. People have to be a little bit, go deeper, try to see together with this metric that I've just studied, what other areas of interest do you want to pursue? What about the data? Can you be able to analyze data? What does the data tell you? What are the trends? What are some of the neglected opportunistic infections that people have left? Can you do something about that? Actually, nowadays, uh, it's not just about going to the lab that you're just a lab tech. You have to have some kind of approach and knowing why am I here? And what am I going to do here? Not just the, the run the test, here is the urine running. What am I trying to do with this urine? Like now I was talking about the reflex text testing. So before in Africa here, people were waiting for doctors to give them they go ahead and run the test. But now we are telling them, if you have done this test here and found that the CD4 is 200 and below, go ahead and do the crack screening. Don't wait for the doctor to tell you. So I think the lot of people, um, you know, they are, they are lucky, especially uh, those who are joining this profession when things, uh, we have so many uh, opportunities. But I think it's about time that they have to broaden uh, their thinking capacity. They have to go outside the box. They have to think, outside what they think is their uh, you know, area of uh, training. Learn more, join these uh, supply chain things. Do uh, you know, the, the diagnostic, um, op, uh, I would call it um, optimum diagnostic networks. To not just only love, just get to know about the data, get to, get to know things that are not just in the, in the lab profession so that you can be all rounded. We should not just be waiting for the samples to come into the lab, but actually the lab is an, you know, the best profession ever because it helps the doctors, it helps the nurses to be able to understand what they are doing. So not only the lab, I would say, but as they join the lab, let them also think broader above and beyond the scopes of their curriculum. That's great. So laboratory as a pivot, uh, as a pivot person, not just a, not just a, a machine processor. Absolutely, it's not just the machine processor that you. Because if it's done, even nowadays, so many nurses have joined the lab. I mean, doctors they have the machine there. They just push the buttons and and get the result. So why would I hire you if I can just get the blood and put it there or the sample? I put push the button and get the result. I want someone who can be able to interpret and get the the data, analyze and tell me the trend, where things are, you know, see why is it this way? What's happening? Are there things that we are missing? Where are the gaps? And can you be able to identify the gaps? 
then you can be able to enjoy the fruits and benefits of being a medical lab tech uh, globally. Great. Uh, final question for you, Shadrach. Um, many people have gone through a lot. Uh, you, you've gone through a lot in terms of getting to where you are at this point. Certainly, you've, you've interacted with many different people, and many people have been either a support or a mentor along the way uh, to help you get to this stage. You've mentioned a few names already during the podcast. Anybody in particular you'd like to, uh, to share some thanks with? Uh, yeah, actually, as one wise man uh, once said that if I have ever seen far is by standing on a, uh, um, you know, a shoulders, uh, a giant's shoulders. So I have my giants. One of them is Francesco, uh, Francesco Marunucci, who um, was my director at the University of Maryland. I, again, appreciate so very much, like I say, uh, Paula, uh, who employed me. And uh, I can't just think of um, another best company apart from IMI, who you know I've known them for many many years, and they saw it fit for me to be able to uh, help them talk about the um, advanced HIV disease and uh, talk about the Krag and the IMI products in in Africa. So uh, Son Bowman has been a friend of mine and now my boss, my employer. I think all these people have shaped me. And even in, here in Kenya, I have so many friends like Abel uh, Onyango, whom we work together um, in AIDS relief program. And so, so many, I actually, I, I have so many, even in Tanzania, I have so many friends, I can't even name them. There's so many, some of them shaped my profession. Some of them helped me uh, literally, some of them, you know, hailed my hands. And, um, I've, you know, uh, I can't thank each one of them uh, enough for what they did to me. But uh, above everything else, I really thank my family because some of us did not um, um, get what we wanted when we were young. So I went to school when I was almost over 40 years. I mean, I got my bachelor degrees when I was over 40 years, my master's when I was over 50 years and, and, and postgraduate diploma in supply chain. But my family really stood with me. So, uh, you know, together with that, I really appreciate my family for having stood with me throughout my studies. That's great, Shadrach. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it very much. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you so much, uh, Robert. Really appreciate your time too. To make a suggestion of someone that would make a great guest or topic you would like to hear more about, please visit us at labop.org. That's L-A-B-O-P-P dot org. Thank you.